From the Newman Vertical Campus in New York City, this is Just To Be Clear, a podcast by the Tools for Clear Speech program at Baruch College and the City University of New York. Welcome to episode four of Just To Be Clear, the podcast from the Tools for Clear Speech program at Baruch College. I'm Kim Edmonds, the host and curriculum specialist with the program. Episode four was remotely recorded and edited during the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. In New York and around the world, life has dramatically changed for most of us, in some cases to a devastating extent. As we cope with a shifting reality and an uncertain future, we hope that our listeners are able to take comfort in the people and pursuits that mean the most to them, even if it's at a distance. Every student we work with at Tools for Clear Speech is multilingual. That is, they can use more than one language. That term describes somewhere between half to two-thirds of the people on the planet as well. If you grew up speaking two or more languages, or if you acquired a second language later in life, you're multilingual. Today, we'll look at the experience of being multilingual from two different angles, a cognitive one and a social one. So there has historically been a lot of curiosity about whether or not the languages we speak influence the way we think or perceive the world. In linguistics, that theory is sometimes known as the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis, or linguistic relativity. But is there actually solid evidence for meaningful differences in cognition between thinking in one language versus in another? And if so, what does that mean for language learners? It's also important to talk about how being multilingual connects to one's identity, especially when it comes to navigating the social and academic experiences of college. How do multilingual students describe themselves, and how does that compare with how they're described by institutions and other societal entities? And what does all this mean for linguistically diverse campuses across the country? Joining me for a conversation about these questions today is Dr. Eva Fernandez. She's a researcher, educator, and academic leader whose areas of expertise span from psycholinguistics to the teaching and learning of academic discourse. She's also bilingual herself. Currently, she is Associate Provost for Innovation and Student Success at Queens College CUNY, so our sister institution, where she works to support innovation in teaching, experiential education, and student success in a variety of programs. I was so excited to have her join me on Zoom for this episode. Before we play the interview, I'd like to note that there is a minor background noise, a sort of thumping sound, that you might hear during the first half of the audio. It's most likely due to new equipment and the Zoom medium, which were both necessitated by the pandemic. Thanks for your understanding. Here's Dr. Eva Fernandez. I was born in Madrid in a very monolingual um, part of the world, I guess. Um, And my family got relocated to the United States when I was 10 years old. So I was suddenly faced with having to learn English um, with very little sort of preparation for it. so I think um, some of my early kind of interest in, in the study of bilinguals came from having experienced that dramatic shift um, and just the ability to, um, to, to belong to two different cultures through this kind of experience in two languages. And um, when you came, it's not just a matter of the brain aging and treating the second language differently, but also your your socio uh, um, anthropological kind of allegiances to groups. Um, where um, I mean, growing up, I 
I, I always wanted to maintain my Spanish and so spend as much time in Spain as I possibly could, as my parents would possibly let me. Um, and uh, of course, part of my focus in studying language had to do with that. Um, and I mean, to make a, a rather long story short, I eventually found myself in grad school um, and I fell in love with the idea of studying bilinguals from the psycholinguistic perspective. Thinking back about what you mentioned about um, bilingual uh, people or multilingual people, and you mentioned, you used the word allegiance, which I think is really interesting because that really echoes an experience that that many of my multilingual New Yorker friends and also multilingual international students I've worked with, they feel, um, you know, when they're learning or speaking in, in another language or a language they feel less comfortable in, it feels like they're like a different face they have on or a different kind of jacket they've put on. Um, and it, it reflects this, um, this idea of linguistic relativity, right? And, and sapir wharf and, and, you know, do I, do you think differently when you have a different language and, and in, in your personal experience and also in, in research that you, that you've done or you've read, is there any substance to this notion that, the languages we speak influence the way we actually think? Well, so here, I'll give you a fun anecdote. Um, when I was, I think I was a junior in high school, I got this scholarship to go spend a week um, learning how to sing um, at the Manhattan School of Music. Um, so one of the instructional periods, the, the teacher, I, you know, imagine this operatic type of person really kind of, um, you know, a unique individual um, telling me, okay, so you speak multiple languages, so I want you to find a place on the stage where you are Spanish and find another place on the stage where you are English. And I thought that that was the most absolutely peculiar thing. Like, honestly, I mean, I can do both in either part of the stage. What do you mean? Um, I guess this is, uh, it's, it's, it, I mean, I, I did what she asked. I don't know if I vocalize better in Spanish or English or differently in each, but um, but it's an example of the popular imagination taking that linguistic relativity thing really, really seriously. Um, I think bilinguals are kind of like the, uh, a fun counterexample to all of that because, you know, um, uh, people who speak multiple languages um, don't necessarily, well, first of all, you don't store memories in a particular language, and there's some neat studies that kind of document this. Mm -hmm. um, uh, for sure, you don't, you, even if you store some of the words, you store uh, the low frequency words that might be associated with some sort of memory in a, or an event, but you really are storing just the gist. Um, there's work that reports that bilinguals who constantly are reading um, newspapers and watching TV and listening to radio in both languages will not accurately be able to report the language of the of the hmm. um, of the uh, recording, um, but they'll remember what they heard. So it's not that you're remembering what you heard, but so those are kind of like interesting examples that completely debunk the idea that you think in a language kind of specific way. Um, separating this language and thought um, idea is, is I, I think it, it helps you, first of all, understand how language works. So yeah, I, I come from that, lingu that, that sort of strand of linguists that don't really um, buy into the linguistic relativity stuff. 
Right. And that's so fascinating because it, it's sort of, I had never heard of these studies you just mentioned where your memories are of a sense or of a meaning, not of a, not of actual encoded language. And some of the reading that I did in preparation talked about not only conflating language and thought, but language and culture, language and self. Um, but I am curious if you as a, as a bilingual person or having worked with many bilingual people, um, do some multilingual people just anecdotally report feeling different when they're thinking or, you know, they're, they're primed to use a certain language or they're speaking another language? Um, has that been your experience personally? And have you heard about that sort of thing? So that's definitely a really good question. And there's, um, there's work, for example, uh, that, um, that takes a look at what the impact is of the language of therapy in a therapy session and whether you can improve a patient's kind of outcomes or, you know, improvement over time if you switch to the language that maybe they prefer or if they can have certain kinds of overcome blocks that when you switch to another language. And so there's there's some documentation of that, for example, mm-hmm. which would lead one to believe. So, yeah, there's this uh, you are a different self, perhaps, when you're speaking Spanish versus when you're speaking um, English. I mean, um, one of the interesting things about being bilingual is that your sort of um, your communicative repertoire is expanded because in addition to being able to modulate your prosody or you know speak faster or slower or choose particular words or syntactic frames, you can also switch language. So, um, for example, a bilingual can exclude people or include people just by switching to the other language, right? And you can do that with like important um, sort of effect for the psychological state of the other and for the psychological state of yourself. So I tend to think of um, when when people say that they feel a different way in when like a, elicit a different identity, well, um, that's probably part of, again, it's your your repertoire of things that you can do with language as a bilingual. Mm. And whether those things make you feel good or bad, um, right? Like if you are systematically excluding others by switching back into the, the language that they don't necessarily feel comfortable with, um, I can see how that, that relates. I guess that's mm. because, you know, we're all uh, a whole person, uh, not just our uh, the, the sort of uh, part of our brain that manages our language. Right. Um, there's a whole lot of other things that are going on. Um, I, I guess as a, as a person interested in, in the mental architecture for bilingualism, um, it is essential to be able to separate those things, um, if only so that we can understand, well, what part is psycholinguistic, what part is controlled by the grammar, what part is controlled by those mechanisms that put that grammar to use, when you say separate those things, um, can you clarify what you meant by that? Yeah, you know, I was going to say, uh, to go back to the linguistic identity and allegiance, right? I mean, um, so of course, it, the languages that you speak might be whatever they are, and us psycholinguists who are so interested in trying to describe that, um, but still because you operate in a, in a sociological environment, right? You're going to make sense of your own um, self and your own knowledge in ways that are so shaped by your history. So I I remember when um, when I started uh, 
a long time ago. I think this must this might have been the questionnaires for my dissertation. So uh, semi-large-ish uh, kind of body of data where we asked students, uh, we asked the participants in the studies to fill out these very elaborate language history questionnaires. You know, in a, in a psycholinguistic study, you always want to know as much as you possibly can about where pe these people learned the languages that they that they know. Um, at the time, we adopted this uh, this question from um, from another uh, research group that was taking to asking um, their participants, "You are going to go have brain surgery. Imagine this." And the doctor tells you that sadly. You know the piece of the brain that is you know diseased and they have to remove um will impact your linguistic abilities as a bilingual you uh have the choice of which of your two languages to keep which one do you keep <laughs> and that was supposed to be like a really good indicator of um what your language dominance might be oh. uh, i mean it turns out that people have absolutely no clue how to answer that question that like oh my god you, what i have to have brain surgery um <laughs> but uh in in those questionnaires we uh we i certainly spent a lot of time looking at um how different kinds of bilinguals in in my sample were responding to those language dominance questions and there were there were those that would um, even almost lie in, in terms of responding, well, it's English because I have to speak English because I have to make money, right? Um, and then there were those bilinguals who would choose Spanish because it's the language of my heritage. And I have to, I have to be Spanish dominant because my grandmother would be rolling in, in her grave kind of thing or, or it does, it would, I, it is such a critical part of my identity. And those answers didn't always map up with what, uh, what their actual dominance profiles might be. Mm. But what they show is how kind of like, sometimes even uh, despite your linguistic ability, your psychosocial um, setup or whatever, your affiliations mm -hmm. um, are going to um, kind of uh, tinge the way that you see yourself. Right. And, and I think that has like really uh, very complicated um, implications at the pedagogical level. Yeah. Uh, how do you deal with some of these uh, complex attitudes? Right. When you get a student who um, who is at one camp or the other, right? That's really interesting to think about um, the, the fact that it's not all about proficiency or dominance. It's about other values that you as an individual may be attached to your language or that society has attached to your language. Um, that's so fascinating. I, uh, that's really interesting to think about. And then you, you mentioned when you get a student, you know, who, who has, that's their experience, that's their lived experience. Did you have, um, have you had that experience? Uh, and did you have ideas for, for how you might bring those students into whatever classroom or academic sort of community that you're building? Well, I guess, um, it, you know, I like to think that our job as educators is, um, first of all, to accept sort of where students are coming from and where they're at and um, get them motivated to want to be the the kind of person that, that our student learning out outcomes are designed to produce, right? So you have to embrace what they're coming with um, with their own biases and their own 
sort of um, language histories as, as uh, complex as those may be and work with those to build on them. Um, so rather than excluding and denying that that stuff exists, if you embrace it, I think it makes a difference. Do you have any ideas for, for people who teach subjects like business, for example, or um, economics or art? Um, you know, are there any practical ways that we can really bring diver- linguistically diverse students and help them participate more and, and not literally just participate in class, but feel that there is an ownership Right, and a, and a sense of belonging in, in these academic environments where academic discourse is not always accessible to, as you mentioned in your work, anyone who's just not accustomed to academic discourse, whether whatever their language is. Right, right. I mean, I, and I think that is the key. You just put your finger on what the key problem is in, in sort of uh, in the struggles in higher ed. Um, how do we bring people up to a level that we may not have even very well defined, right? Um, because the economist teaching the, the intro to economics class or uh, the person teaching that, uh, that really difficult biology class that has to be taken by almost everybody who's majoring in a STEM discipline, those instructors may not have necessarily interrogated, well, what does it mean to talk like a biologist or to talk like an economist? Um, what are the, the buzzwords? What are the standard kind of strategies in presenting arguments? Um, and where are people going to have um, where are people going to have problems? Um, I think um, I think we sometimes fall prey to thinking of multilingual students as coming with a deficiency. And so, uh, what really helps is. I mean, I wish I knew how to do this. I haven't figured it out. But how do we get rid of that 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 misunderstanding of what multilingualism means? Um, so much interesting work. Again, a lot of it contested, but so but but uh, it doesn't matter. I mean, uh, suggests to us that bilinguals are really good at dealing with ambiguity, and um, uh, for example, at suspending certain. Um, uh, certain ways of thinking about the world by function of speaking two languages. So, uh, in fact, embrace it and celebrate it. And I think that that helps you take students to the next level about adopting a new code, which is the code of your academic discipline. Yeah. I wish, actually, that we could even celebrate uh, multilingualism by having more events in languages other than English. I think that's a really great idea. I think that there could be more sort of student organizations because we know CUNY students, um, and you know, I certainly think we can generalize to most college students, but certainly CUNY students, they have so much drive and energy. And I think bringing, you know, it can't, and I, I don't think that either one of us has this idea, but it certainly can't just be a top-down process. Um, you know, and having the students participate actively that's, that's absolutely right yeah, right yeah but you have to empower them to do it because right. um there are so many signals that we send um not even knowing um that that could that could so easily turn them off and, right. and make them worry can you give an example um well so i'll give you an example from my personal life that i like to mm-hmm. talk to my students about mm. so when uh, my kids were little we were on a train to westchester one day um 
my kids, uh, let's see, I'm married to a guy from the United States, so he speaks English to them, I speak Spanish to them. Um, and so my kids at that age in particular, they were talking back in English systematically. So here I am the whole train ride speaking Spanish to the kids, the kids are speaking English to me. As a, 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 a woman, as she was about to get off, says to me, oh, I wish that you were my kid's babysitter. <laughs> sank. What do you mean? Is it because I'm speaking Spanish to them? So notice that she meant this in a very positive, like, oh, I love that you're engaging in such a wonderful rapport with people. But is the fact that I'm speaking Spanish all of a sudden, um, I don't know that she would have done that had the rapport been, I don't know, uh, imagine a different kind of linguistic context, right? Mm. So it's so easy for us to devalue people's linguistic identities. Mm -hmm and not even be aware of it. Right. Um, and I just, again, I fear that uh, that with the multilingual community that we have, that we might be doing this all the, th all the time, we don't really mm. have a finger on it. Kind of alienating or reducing others to just what they speak and, and what they could do for you as like a tool. Right, right. 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 Well, and, and making assumptions that, well, because of the languages you speak, you must be in a particular profession or you right. must be, you know, I mean, I did want to say to the woman, oh, actually, I'm a PhD professor, uh, you know, mm -hmm. not babysitter, but right. um, that's an interesting assumption. Yeah, that is, do you, you talk to your students about that early on and kind of have a conversation about maybe experiences that they've had? Yeah, in a similar and, way. you know, I have to say that some of my most um, enjoyable and profound moments in, in classes, big and small, are when we talk about those linguistic identity things. Um, in a psycholinguistics class, they don't always come up, but of course they do whenever we're talking about acquisition and about mm -hmm. certain aspects of, um, you know, um, bilingualism, etc. Mm -hmm. And um, they all have incredibly incredibly beautiful stories about both how their language and language history serves to validate who they are and mm -hmm. is something that they treasure and um, they would never give up or they're so sorry that they lost this language or right. whatever um, to those moments of like agony based on um, the kind of suffering that comes from others making assumptions mm -hmm. that are clearly you know, not, not right. Right, clearly incorrect. There's this there's this host of labels out there, and I read an interesting uh, article that you cited, um, Ortmeier Hooper, about um, students maybe feeling alienated by, and not really feeling, I'm not really ESL, and you write about this with the two students you described from, from Queens College in the music department. Yes. Right, and they're like, I'm not really ESL, but I don't really feel comfortable in my other language, but I, I do, consider myself English, but maybe my English isn't good, and they have those kinds of thoughts. What What do you think is the impact of these labels that exist, or the a lack of labels that exist, on students who have these identities? I, I suspect that a lot of our students feel kind of um, uh, disregarded by, by some of these bureaucratic categories that we have, and we need to work a little bit mm. to get them a, a bit better. And also, I mean, I, I also think that we need to have better ways to allocate the right um, supports for people. Because if they do need um, more personalized writing support, because they, uh, well, because of whatever, because of whatever reason, um, and I would also say that uh, in that respect, the kind of writing support that you need 
when you are a native and a non-native speaker of the language, in some respects, a lot of it is going to be very similar to mm-hmm. the language history. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the, the real question about what kind of um, specific supports you need as a non-native speaker are probably more focused on what on the vocabulary is key there mm-hmm. and developing fluency and feeling comfortable, right? Right. So some of the things that you guys are trying to do with the intelligibility um, stuff. Um, so it's not about um, saying you've got to change the way that you speak, but really you've got to feel more comfortable mm-hmm. in this way. That, the pedagogical supports for that, uh, I think also apply to the student who only speaks English, um, is all of a sudden being asked to write like a linguist, like, oh my gosh, what is that? Mm-hmm. Where, <laughs> how do I make a, a, a cogent linguistic argument? Mm-hmm. I've never really known how to do that. Right. I mean, I, I think meeting the students where they are, all of them, is so critical. And you mentioned, you know, students might feel unseen or, or disregarded or disrespected even by well-intentioned attempts at in, in inclusion and support and how carefully we need to think about our approaches to to these supports. It's all kind of wrapped up together, right? The labels that you mentioned and the, the finer grained look that we want to take. Um, and I'll just mention now for our listeners, our future listeners, that... Um, where is my academic discourse on a multilingual campus? Um, chapter 10, Making Teaching and Learning Matter. So chapter 10, Academic Discourse on a Multilingual Campus by Ann Davison and Eva Fernandez and Sue Lance Goldhaber is something that I just recommend for general reading for anyone who's interested in more because it, it takes a really great look at how um, support has been integrated in, in the music department at Queens, at Queens, Queens College. Um, for for linguistically diverse students, and I think that's just really great work that I'd love to see elsewhere. Um, so, what would you, as a as a multilingual person yourself, and as a researcher, and as a as a faculty member, and as a ad- administrator, what would you like to say, if anything, to learners and multilingual listeners who sometimes find that their identities are maybe they feel in flux or they don't feel welcome or acknowledged? What, what kind of, would you give them advice or, or you know, what could, what would you like to say to them? Mm. Don't be afraid to be who you are. It is such a, I, I think um, in all of my, in all of my wanderings around the university and New York City and, you know, I'm in the broader world. I mean, whenever I, um, I travel, not that we get to do that mm. <laughs> very frequently now, um, but uh, it, the, the sort of the differences uh, between people are, uh, and the uniqueness of uh, of all the people that I that I meet in, my, in all of those wonderings are so wonderful, and uh, we can learn so much from that. So don't be afraid to let that kind of shine. That it sounds it sounds kind of corny, but but I think it's um I think it's it's really important to embrace who you are. Mm-hmm. Um, I. I, I do think that um, we need to do a lot of work in understanding where those biases come from at the language level to, to start to begin to eradicate them, mm-hmm. um, uh, and which which then of course makes it kind of 
difficult for the person being in the position of having to sort of stand up for yourself when you speak with what's perceived as an accent, right? Um, but sometimes those uh, that uniqueness is the thing that actually makes you highly memorable um, and might even be the thing that makes you stand above and beyond your competition, if you will, right? Uh, I think that that's really, um, really powerful. Um, and also, I mean, the, I guess another thing about the multilingual identity um, that goes beyond the language. So being part of two linguistic communities for me was always so much fun because it gave me the ability to be able to read more books than my friends because I could read literature from more places. I could have friends from more uh, countries and cities and so on because I was able to communicate that with them in, in different ways. Uh, so that kind of ability to engage with a bigger section, sector of the world, I think is, is awesome. So embrace that. Thank you so much for your time, for being on the show. We really appreciate it. Our listeners, I know, will really enjoy this. And I will post a few other um, recommendations from Dr. Fernandez's body of work on our website um, so you guys can all peruse it uh, the way that I did. And um, thank you again. Kim, thank you so much. This is such a fun way to spend my morning. I'm so glad. interested in some of the work referenced in my conversation with Eva, visit the fourth episode page at jtbc.baruch.cuny.edu. Coming up in a moment, TFCS speech consultant Jessica Coyle chats with her longtime 2T, Lee Ma, a graduate student at Baruch who has been participating in TFCS services since 2019. Lee Ma tells us about her experience speaking multiple languages, how she describes herself, and the rewards and challenges of academic life. I'm here with Lee Ma, who is a PhD candidate in finance at Baruch, and she is a fabulous, fun, interesting young woman, and I've loved working with you, Lee Ma. Me too. Yeah, those words uh, are also, I want to describe you, fabulous and wonderful, yeah, just for you. (laughs) A mutual admiration society, fabulous. (laughs) So uh, I just wanted to get just a little background on you know, your relationship with English? Uh, Actually, I studied English from uh, middle school since, you know, I'm from a little, uh, I come from a little village in China, so it's not a big city. So maybe in some big cities in China, they can start to learn English uh, at a very young age. Uh, For example, nowadays, the uh, the kids in China, they start to learn English at at kindergarten uh, stage. Yeah. Mm. So, but for me, I just started, uh, it's a natural and a normal process. I started, uh, I started to learn English at middle school, maybe around uh, 12, yeah, 12 years ago. 
Do you think, how would you identify? Do you think of yourself as ESL? Do you think of yourself as a non-native speaker, as a multilingual person, as a bilingual person? Which of those labels do you typically use to describe yourself? Maybe I will say I am a non, non-native speaker. I can regard it as my advantage for some sense. Yeah, and uh, you know, speaking English is very important nowadays, especially uh, in the in this 21st century yeah and uh, uh, i can learn more things especially in internet since you know there are so many fabulous things and videos and music they are in english they are describing english so mm-hmm. i think yeah and it could give me more confidence sometimes mm-hmm. speaking english and you can uh, like, like, for example, I can come here to study for a PhD in America. English is very important. English can help me to, uh, uh, to uh, seize this opportunity. Yeah. So, you know, I, it sounds like the way you're describing it, you think of English more as like uh, a skill tool. set. Yeah, yeah, skill, tool. Like a yeah. skill set rather than part of who you are. If uh, in front of a foreigner, I, at first I, I will say, yeah, where I come from, yeah, I am Chinese, mm-hmm. and uh, what my identity, I'm a PhD student, mm-hmm. yeah, and uh, maybe, yeah, this program is is taught in English. <laughs> <laughs> so it would be a little strange to say, and I speak English, because obviously. <laughs> yeah, 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 it's kind of strange for me. Yeah, uh, interesting. Yeah, for me to say that, yeah. So, like, you know, do you find that when you wake up in the morning, do you feel mm-hmm. like you're thinking in English or do you think you're thinking more in Mandarin? Um, or do you think in Sichuan? <laughs> uh, maybe, uh, I guess uh, nowadays, you know, it's in quarantine. So every day I wake, I wake up, I just, I just, I think my mind is just blank, but <laughs> about several months months ago, uh, since you are in a very you are in an English environment, you speak it, you speak English and you read English and you uh, the, the the class is taught in English. So maybe at that period, yeah, my mind will follow English. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. If you you are in a you are in an environment we full of always English, yeah. Mm-hmm. So you really are deeply, deeply immersed in English. Um, it depends sometimes and sometimes not. Yeah, uh, I guess maybe there will be a little difference since you know when you are thinking English, maybe you will have a different thinking way, especially compared with the traditional yeah chinese mandarin or my yeah, dialect i i think uh, uh i will try to uh think uh, uh how to say that um maybe um you uh, uh, for me if i can practice english more and more i, I think i will enjoy this kind of english speaking you know just uh, it's just like you are you um, you get familiar with this culture. Mm-hmm. You 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 learn something different. You have a you have a, you you gain something different from the previous m- myself. So I, I guess uh, it will 
it will be a second me maybe sometime. <laughs> so where is the place where you are now where you feel the most English language Lima or maybe where you feel mm-hmm. maybe in the restaurant since yeah 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 when you order the food and when you talk with your uh, American friends or some other uh, some other friends but not from China from uh, Korea or yeah like you said from uh, India yeah yeah you will more feel I, I, I not you I yeah I will feel more I'm like a, a maybe an American Lima yeah yeah, mm-hmm. yeah that's where I feel I feel like that mm-hmm. What has your experience been as a multilingual person speaking, you know, either two or three languages, depending on how you define the languages? Uh, what has your experience been in an English-speaking higher ed institution? The idea of being getting my PhD in another country is very hard for me to imagine. I imagine I think it's probably hard for a lot of people. Yeah, yeah, it's also hard for us, even though that we start to learn English very at a very young age. Since you know, and because you are a foreigner, you are still when when you read something, especially read those literature, it's hard. Uh, not not for the uh, native native speaker, and no more say. Uh, us we are from non-native we are non-native speakers so yeah reading those literatures might be a hard thing for for me at least for me and uh, doing presentation is also a a difficult task for me at the at first but uh, after several presentations you i i can feel that i i am making a progress you know i'm curious you just mentioned like how things are in terms of how difficult they are in, in like your studies. How about socially? How about like culturally? Yeah, you know, uh, because you are in a PhD, I am in a PhD program, so most of your life is related to study and the research. And yeah, it's a hard thing, you know, and it's very, it's a pity for me to, I don't have time or uh, there's no, there's, yeah, very, very, um, few opportunities for me to know new friends, especially in the native speakers. Um, yeah, that, that that's a very that's a pity for me. You know, especially I want to hang out with those friends. I want to know more about American study, American lifestyle, American uh, food, American culture. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. That's one thing. Maybe. Uh, mm, yeah, that's what I can, what I can think of now. Yeah, uh, I remember one time this guy that I was uh, friends with in France said to me, uh, "I like you, Jessica, because you're so nice." And I was mm-hmm. like, "Oh, he doesn't know me," because <laughs> I think people who really know me—that's not the first thing they would say. They would say, "Oh, you're funny." or you're fun, but like nice is like my number six or seven <laughs> descriptor. Okay, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. If you want to be fat, funny, you must be good at French. <laughs> that's, a whole, that's a whole different level of fluency. I am not there. Mm-hmm. Well, mm-hmm. you know, as someone who has been through that journey of learning English, is there anything that you would change? Is there anything you wish you did differently? Or do you feel like, Yep, I'm happy with my English language process. 
I wish I could speak more when I started start to learn English at the first time. You you know there there is a show in China. It's called a non formal meeting, and there are uh, a bunch of maybe not a bunch a group of a group of foreigners from different country, but they speak Mandarin very well. Yeah, very very well. And some some of them maybe just learn man learn Chinese for two years or even. One year, yeah, they can speak Chinese very, very much, uh, very, very good. But um, for me, yeah, speaking is a shortage for me. So I wish I could practice speaking uh, many years ago. Yeah, that, that, yeah, that's one suggestion maybe for those English learners. Yeah, it's it's hard to find that practice. I mean, if you're especially if you're somebody as busy as you, that、mm-hmm. can be. That can be really tough to to even find time to do anything other than your、uh, finance studies. Do you think that you know that feeling that you mentioned of being in a restaurant, of feeling like、uh, American Lima? Do you think that's something that's going to disappear when you go back to China, or do you think that that's something that's going to stay with you from time to time? Yeah, I think it's the second <laughs> second one. Yeah, if I didn't come back. And、uh, for most of the time, if I stayed at my own country, and、uh, I didn't、uh, use—I mean, use mean—I mean, speaking with foreigners, maybe that feeling will disappear. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.、Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, maybe you'll have to go. You know, just like I did when I was in Korea. Maybe you'll have to find an American restaurant and,、uh, you know, <laughs> hang out with some Americans just to get that feeling back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I should keep that feeling, right? <laughs> It's nice. I miss. I'm. I. I always feel so excited when I go to like a sauna in Koreatown or something, and I'm like,、oh, I feel like I'm back. It's so nice. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you so much for、uh, for having this chat, Lima.、Um, I will stop recording now, and、uh, I'll say goodbye to you when we get off. Producing this episode sometimes felt like I was on the outside looking in. I grew up monolingual, and even though I started learning and using Spanish in middle school, I've never really been sure if that quote qualified me for multilingual status. Is my Spanish good enough for me to consider myself multilingual? Does that have an impact on who I am? I suspect that I'm not the only one who's had this question. One of the threads that I noticed connecting the interviews with Eva and Lee Ma was their sense of being the same person, the same self, regardless of the language they used at any given moment. To me, at least, their stories and beliefs underscored the way a shared language is the framework for so much of the work and play of life, for building relationships, creating memories, engaging with the creativity of others, and putting your own creativity out in the world. Like Eva pointed out, as users of multiple languages, they have the opportunity to do more of that with even more people. I suspect that it's those kinds of experiences that most profoundly shape who we are, rather than the particularities of the different grammars that may live inside our heads. That's what I hope you take away from this episode. If English is a second language for you, in other words, if you're multilingual, we were able to learn so much through this episode, and I still feel that there is a lot more to say and know. 
The beliefs and experiences of multilingual people no doubt vary widely, so if you'd like to share yours, drop us a line at jtbc.baruch.cuny.edu. You can also listen to our other episodes there and check out the helpful supplemental practice materials we have for English language learners. You can work on important listening, speaking, and pronunciation skills, as well as practice with new vocabulary taken straight from this episode. We'd like to give a special thanks to Dr. Eva Fernandez from Queens College CUNY for her appearance on this episode, and to Lee Ma. Original music for Just To Be Clear is written, recorded, and produced by Colby Hamilton. Supplemental materials were created by TFCS speech consultant Michelle Kaplan. This is the Just To Be Clear podcast produced by the Tools for Clear Speech program at Baruch College in New York City. Join us next time for our fifth episode. And just to be clear, we appreciate you listening. See you next time.